Hi, Alex Moyle here, host of Arico's podcast, Technically Speaking. Over the last few months, we've had 10 different podcasts. We've talked about how AI is helping care of the elderly in homes. We've spoken to a number of authors that cover everything from cyber, AI, business development, leadership, innovation. This episode with Tom Goodwin today talks about digital transformation, not in the COVID world, but post-COVID. But it's also the last episode in our first series. Our goal when creating this podcast is to create a place where the Icelandic business community is excited about learning about not only the best ideas in Iceland, but from around the world. So after this podcast, we'll be starting series two. We've got a new co-host coming on board, but we've also got some of our internal subject matter experts and practice leads that will be hosting their own mini-series of podcasts to bring you Icelandic conversations from Icelandic businesses. So I hope you enjoy the podcast with Tom and I look forward to seeing you in the next series. pleasure to welcome to Technically Speaking, Tom Goodwin, author of Digital Darwinism. Described as the number one voice in marketing to listen to and describes himself as an industry provocateur. Uh, So let's see what goes on as we talk to Tom about digital transformation. So hello, Tom, how are you doing? I'm great. I'm great. Thank you very much for having me on the show. And I'm looking forward to being as provocative as I can after that introduction. We'll see how you do. So tell us a little bit about how you became talk about digital transformation. That's a good question. Um, I mean, I I never set out to be provocative. Um, It concerns me slightly when people confuse sort of cynicism with scepticism. So I'm extremely um, sceptical. Um, but not remotely cynical. And I was just very aware that the world was changing in very interesting ways and there was a degree of clarity to it. And largely people were saying things that were complete nonsense. Um, So I kind of fairly gently and politely sort of offered views and asked questions. I'm a big fan of questions. And I think through that, because I was someone that was calling out the crap, being against sort of nonsense and bureaucracy and the wheat and the chaff and the faff, um, people just found me quite interesting. But it's, it's not something I set out to do. Do you talk a lot about how big businesses struggle to innovate and actually it's the smaller businesses that are sort of eating the bigger businesses for lunch because they they get what the future's about. Yeah, I mean, we have to be careful that many of the companies that we point out as being dramatically successful are often losing vast amounts of money and often don't have a good unit economics. So um, one needs to be really careful with the sort of nuance of all this. So there's tons of stuff that big companies can learn from small companies, but there's also tons of stuff that small companies can learn from big companies. And there's a lot of envy in the marketplace. And the real skill is figuring out what is it that companies are doing um, that is great, regardless of their size and trying to learn from that. But it's certainly the case that the big companies are awful at innovation. It's difficult, isn't it? Because uh, I guess once companies have shareholders, so when, when, when the big tech companies float, everyone suddenly goes, well, let's see how they do now. They've got a 
report to shareholders. And uh, I think the best example in the last couple of years is WeWork that just before the float, they found out actually it was a real estate company, not a tech company. <laughs> um, the, I mean, the world right now is a very strange place in many ways. And the word technology or using technology in your um, S1 filing is enough to get you ridiculous sort of P ratios. And um, the big question in all this is how do big companies innovate? And I think there's a lot of excuses that are used. So people say that, you know, big companies are bureaucratic. Well, stop being bureaucratic. Big companies are risk averse. Well, start taking risks. Uh, big companies are not full of creative people. Well, hire some creative people and celebrate that in your culture. Um, we go around using, you know, quarterly reporting as being this sort of barrier to everything interesting. And there are ways around it. And, you know, part of my consulting is to try and help companies realize that they can't just keep on buying smaller companies or acqui hiring people, but instead they need to create a culture of innovation and creativity and imagination and optimism within themselves. And that's not very easy at all, but we have this weird prioritization framework where companies tend to do things that are very easy but don't matter much more readily than they do things that are vitally important but very hard. Um, and that really has to stop. What's, what's great, as I, uh, as I read your book, one of your last chapters is talking about preparing for the new world. And I guess 2020 and 2021, the new world has arrived. 2020 was probably the biggest digital transformation in the history of of man, what have you seen in terms of organizations having to transform how they they deliver their their business model? Um, I mean, it's, it's early days. I mean, a few things to make clear. One is the, these are unprecedented times, um, without doubt. But that doesn't mean that they weren't predictable. I mean, the idea that somehow we would be watching TV over the internet, that would be buying things over the internet, that people's workplace would become unbundled from geography. Like, these are not things that we couldn't have foreseen. Like, the explanation for it and the speed of it were a little bit more challenging. Um, but this idea that somehow the future is unknowable and that things are changing faster than they've ever changed before and everything is chaotic, it's not really rooted in fact. But I sort of disagree with that. Obviously, at Eco, we, we talk to a lot of companies that are planning digital transformations or changing how they work their IT systems, but procrastination generally rules, right? Uh, yes. Manana, manana, manana. And sort of to counter to what you say is I think last year was like companies had to stop procrastinating, right? They've talked about going e having an e-commerce website for, for years, yes. you know, but never yes. found never found the budget, but were suddenly forced to sell online or uh, deliver yeah. their service online. And, and many of the things that have been done are remarkable and um, it's uh, sort of bad tasting somehow to um, point out the miraculous things like Dyson inventing ventilators in about a week or, you know, in China building three hospitals in 11 days. Like the, one of the good things that's come from this is the realization that when things really matter and are important and are urgent, then companies can do incredible things. Two things concern me slightly. One is we are in an interim. I mean, we're absolute idiots if we think that the world in 2030 will be full of people working from cupboards and um, you know homeschooling kids at the same time as work like we're in a very strange interim and we will return in many ways to something far more normal than I think many people are predicting um, and the second thing is this hasn't really worked I mean it's worked in the sense that many of us are still alive and you know people uh, are not yet all alcoholics but most people are coping 
you know, if, if, a, if a Boeing 747 has four engines that cut out, um, it can glide and probably safe, uh, land safely with a great pilot. But that's not a way that you build planes. Um, and there's a huge difference between sustaining something and coping with something than constructing a better way to do things. And the fascinating conversations that will happen now will all be about what do we learn from this? So how do we put in place some of the measures that have worked better than we thought in this process? And how we return to something which is more like a hybrid world? And that's riddled with fascinating questions. What happens if you do a Zoom call and half the people are in one room at the same time? You know, that's going to breed sort of envy and distrust how do you hire people and pay people in a remote world how do you form really close relationships if people are expected to not be in the office sometimes there's some really fascinating problems to look into yeah i've got a friend who's uh works at a law firm and his colleague that works in london and gets the london salary literally lives four streets away yes he's been to london for in the last 12 months than the other guy has but yet <laughs> There's this sort of twenty to thirty percent disparity between what they what what they earn. But lots of lots of HR issues to work through. For sure, for sure. And even the idea of um, doing a full time role. I mean, it's now possible to do several jobs at the same time. You don't necessarily have to tell your employer that you're doing that. Um, so the kind of notion of commitment, the notion of working hours, the notion of retirement, like many of the sort of fundamental. Um, assumed limitations of the world suddenly change. But you know, maybe that's a topic for another day. From the companies you've worked with over the last 12 months, what are the changes you think companies have made where actually they think we're going to stick with this? I'm sounding extremely rude today, but I think um, companies have largely done things very, very quickly as they needed to. And they've largely put in place an interim measure and I think they're foolish in thinking that the measures they put in the interim are going to be helpful for the long term. I don't, I don't think people are really thinking through this stuff. I mean, open plan offices um, seem like one of those um, examples of, of companies just getting it wrong. So the move towards open plan has generally been a nightmare for most sort of ideas-based roles or ones that require creativity or communication, despite people assuming the opposite. Um, so I see lots of companies putting into play measures like allowing people to work from home for two or three days a week and people being asked to come into the office at the same time on set days and how does that get structured by team I think what tends to happen and this is kind of a theme within my book is we make these immediate and sort of superficial and very clearly observable changes and often what really needs to happen is the stuff under the surface often it's culture you know how do we start trusting people how do we believe in each other how do we recruit people people that think very differently how do we deal with arguments and and differences of opinions it's processes it's very boring things to do with how we actually collaborate and instead we tend to kind of you know let everyone download zoom and subscribe to google docs and think so that's probably okay right i guess a lot of companies work in a short-termist way because that's that the capacity to plan long term is always is always limited. In terms of how businesses deliver to their customers, you talk a lot about how you have more empathy with your customers, how you have more of a more human in the approach to how technology touches your customers. Have you seen any changes companies have made that you think have, have had a good impact on, 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 on the environment? Um, one of the most positive things about a kind of new range of startups that we see around the world 
um, is they have been constructed for this environment and often they've been constructed um, in a, quite an empathetic way. So direct-to-consumer brands are quite interesting in that they tend to make um, choices about what to buy very quick and they tend to make websites that are very fast and they tend to be sort of clear and easy to use. So we, we have a whole tranche of companies at the moment. They're not perfect, but they're showing much more customer centricity in their approach um, and I think that's how things need to change. So again, I'm, I'm sorry for sort of not giving you examples of companies doing a good job at the moment. It's just that there aren't that many. So companies need to stop being in the business of production and instead be in the business of solving customer problems. And we are still in the industrial revolution era where companies will obsess about making a better car without really knowing how consumer expectations have changed. And it's only really a company like Tesla that now shows car companies quite how bafflingly non-customer oriented they've been all these years. Yeah, well, I, I mean, that's the, the difference when you've got a software company that builds cars rather than a car company that, that runs software to, to deliver their, 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 their motor vehicle. It's true, and we can um, we can be very kind in the appreciation of excuses that companies have, and we can say that you know BMW spent years and years you know refining their motors and getting more power and being more fuel efficient. Um, but the fact remains that if you talk to people today and say, what do you care about in a car? It's going to be things like how easy it is to buy. It's going to be about how well it works with your phone. It's going to be about um, how instinctive it is to use. It's going to be about the experience of ownership and what happens when you try and get it serviced. And uh, all of those questions seem to go unanswered by the traditional companies because they think they're in the business of creating cars rather than in the business of helping people have a delightful way to get around. Do you think that really makes a difference to consumers over price? Do you think they they pref do you think they will pay more for a car that's easy to use that that I get someone services it quickly and I get a good service when I need it? I think consumers are different in a myriad of ways, um, and there are certainly segmentations that segments that will show that price is the most important thing by a long way. But I think what we've done is we've discounted everything. Um, that's to do with delight or experience. I mean, I bought a printer the other day and it cost me $100 and it took me about four hours to get it to work, um, which if you were going to be obnoxious and calculate your hourly rate, you'd realise it's probably the most expensive printer in the world and I'd have been far better off paying $190 and getting one that worked immediately. And it's it's things like that. I mean, I, when I go back to the UK, I choose a train route based on the one that has Wi-Fi rather than the one that's cheaper. Right. Um, so there are all sorts of sort of like imaginative sort of asymmetric um, experiences and add-ons and benefits and reasons to believe that I think companies don't do a good job of, of answering. I mean, I buy a Casper mattress, not because it's the best mattress for the money, but just because I don't really care that much about mattresses and I'm sure it's good enough. Um, and companies are not really that good at dealing with the fact that people want simplicity, they want confidence in the decisions they make, they want assurance that it's um, good enough, they want to feel good when they see it, they want to talk to their friends uh, and not feel like an idiot if they bought the wrong thing. And that's really how people tend to buy things. And we forget that. And I guess that course, what, what a lot comes down to the marketing messages in terms of how businesses try to get across not just what they do, but how they do it in a way that makes people want to buy. 
Yeah, I mean, the the very strange thing that happened to marketing is that uh, marketing became very interested in people and very interested in data about how people behave. And then they used that at the end of the process. You know, so someone's made a phone that takes great quality pictures and has um, really good battery life. And then they give it to marketing to figure out how to sell it. And it's an extremely profound change, but we need to stick marketing at the front of the process. We need to go out and speak to people and go, right, what would they like in a hotel? Um, what would be the best sort of kettle to make today? What's a delightful piece of furniture for modern needs? And when you do that, you make radically different things that are then remarkably easy to sell. I mean, you know, famously, Tesla has zero dollars as a marketing budget, which is extraordinary in that category. But everything from sort of, you know, interesting uh, propositions like um, ASOS or, you know, companies like WeWork or Airbnb, they don't tend to spend that much money on marketing because they just have something that's quite different and fits a product need. Yeah, but I think also those types of businesses, they've got a product that delivers well enough that people want to tell other people about it. You think Uber in the early days, like, like you could pay with a card. You knew when it was going to turn up. You knew the driver, yes. and you knew what it was going to cost. Right? Just much better than ringing the the lady in the in a little smoky back room in a dodgy city centre. Yeah, absolutely. But that's a great example. If if you make something that's good enough, then people will. I mean, not not every category is full of things that people talk about. Like people don't tend to talk about pet food experiences that much, and they don't tend to go bananas about how good their kitchen, you know, cutting board is. But within some categories, it's quite realistic that people do that. And even if people don't become influencers about it, like the fact is that you know, slowly people hear about things, and slowly people um, read articles about companies that don't well and the the great thing about now is that life is more democratic so if you do make something that's great you have a better chance of succeeding than ever before what what what's a measure for me in the last year is really how easy it is to solve issues with any sort of products that you're buying without picking up the telephone and for me the way different businesses are using chatbots to facilitate dealing with customer requests and actually then having the authority to process refunds is is for me becoming quite a big differentiator between the types of companies that you want to buy from and those that you don't. I think um, I always worry that I may be a very unrepresentative consumer, but customer service for me is almost the most important thing in everything I buy. I mean, I now fly, or I used to fly with uh, American Airlines simply because they gave me great customer service on Twitter. Like I could ask them to do anything and they do it straight away. And actually when you're flying, there's uh, limits to how exciting champagne is after a while. And there are limits to the degree to which you care about um, the seat comfort. And you actually start caring more about power sockets. You care more about Wi-Fi being on all flights. And you care a lot about being able to change your flight with one press of the button. And it's odd because, I mean, part of the problem is it's very hard for businesses to make a business case, to make a change that's never been done before and that nobody knows how successful it will be. And often you can't make a business case for doing something um, that doesn't need to be done and isn't a problem. And I think that's, that's what stifles a lot of innovation. Yeah, and customer experience is a really good one for that. I mean, we work with a lot of companies where we're, looking at developing websites or the ability for customers to manage their own their own profiles and the case inside which is well surely they just 
they haven't said they want to do it differently. They haven't said they want one button to click it. And, yeah. and sometimes businesses in their short-term thinking forget that actually that that customer will secretly be looking for another way to do that if they can't do what they want today. I mean, we have a huge problem in the world right now that we have too much data and we have a belief that data has all the answers. And data simply shows the habits of a current paradigm. You know, there was no data before Dyson that showed that consumers were dying to spend 450 quid on a vacuum. There was no data before the iPhone that said that a phone that was $1,000 would be in any way plausible for people to buy. There was no data that showed Tesla that electric vehicles were in any way interesting to people but we don't build bridges only where people currently swim across a river um, we accept that there's a problem and if you make a solution then it will succeed by new metrics and that's a huge problem because most companies these days need data to approve business cases yeah and and, and especially when we're looking at voice of customer that that's in some ways, it's not data in the rawest form. It's generally covered anecdotally through conversations, user groups, uh, yes. the customer service representatives having the ability to share customer complaints and views upline to say, this is, this is costing us money and losing us time. Absolutely. And um, I mean, there is a huge battle. There's a lovely um, principle called the McNamara fallacy. And that kind of states one thing, but the corollary is quite interesting. So it states that things that can get measured, you know, tend to be prioritized. Um, but the sort of reverse of that is that things that can't be measured are never really ever considered. So no one really knows what the value of me being happy if I open up a box from Selfridges and it's got a scented candle in it and, it, and the box looks beautiful. Like, there's no way to measure the delight that I might get from that box. There's no way to attribute the degree to which a first class experience on Emirates is down to flowers at the check in desk. Um, and if you live in a world where you're constantly living by data, you basically end up getting rid of everything which is interesting and imaginative and empathetic and non-measurable. Um, and then you end up sort of removing all of the reasons. But you can't, you can't sort of go through it bit by bit. You have to sort of create this holistic, um, empathetic, imaginative, delightful experience. And that includes doing things like having a chatbot, but also having a phone number that's very clearly displayed on a website and having an email contact. Yeah. It means empowering customer service agents to make decisions for you rather than um, forcing things to go up uh, a pipeline to someone else. Yeah, and that's what, what interests me is often the social media manager in a lot of organisations has more power to give you something than actually the person that you would contact on the chatbot. And it's only when you when you complain loudly that does someone with a, with power to change things actually make it happen. Yeah, I mean another example of this very strange culture in the moment is these feedback surveys saying we really care how you think. Um, we're dying to know how your experience was, and then it comes from an email that you can't reply to. And all that's <laughs> happening is you're being forced to do you know, some sort of N NPR score for them, mainly so someone can get bonused. I mean, actually, NPR is an entirely useless device, in my opinion, for improving a service. If you literally wrote an email saying, I hope you had a great hotel stay, any comments that you've got will be read by Derek, who's 
eager to know how it was. And then you just gave them a textbook to fill it, a text box to fill in. You'd end up with all sorts of wonderful comments about how the pillows were delightful and the lighting could be improved and how the person on the reception desk was brilliant. Um, you know, how the gym probably needs a bit of a clean occasionally. Um, that's extremely valuable data that's very hard to process and it's very hard to measure. And yet it seems it's more important for us to measure things than it is for us to improve them. Yeah. I mean, I, I think if you look at automation gone bad, you think about when you actually do ring a company, I always think about how many menus do I have to go through before I stand a chance of speaking to a human being? And when I yes. am using those sort of chatbot tools on, on websites, you can tell when it's a bot. And it's always interesting how quickly you actually can engage with a human being. Uh, yeah. Like I was, I was with Dell the other day and literally I, I just gave up because a few times I was like, could I please converse yeah. with a human? I'm sorry, we do not recognise that question. Yeah. I mean, it, it gets me very angry, to be perfectly honest. I mean, as an industry, I think the global advertising industry is, is something like a $1 trillion industry. So companies around the world are spending $1 trillion hoping to talk to people, hoping to get noticed. And then when someone actually does notice an ad and they want to speak to the company, all of a sudden it's a customer service request and all of a sudden it's a cost to minimize. Um, and dealing with existing customers or dealing with inbound interest is actually something that companies seem unbelievably unexcited by and it becomes a cost to minimize and it becomes something to give to a robot, which is an extremely strange way to think about customer service. I mean, that somehow a customer's time is less important than your own staff's time. I mean, we live in an age of, you know, global outsourcing and cheap labor and hundreds of millions of people out of work. Like, let's figure out a way to serve people properly. Yeah, no, in indeed. From what you're seeing at the moment, what do you expect successful companies to be doing that they're maybe not doing or working towards today? Um, the key thing is actually how do they innovate and how do they change? It's, it's literally those two things. And I think companies are doing a good job of buying innovation. It doesn't work that well, but they're doing a good job of, of trying that approach. So the main question to answer is how do they actually create a culture of, of change? And what does that look like? And what new products and services do they do? Um, and that really does, at the heart, come down to a, an interest in technology. I mean, technology is fascinating, and people like you and I need to know what 5G means, and we need to know what AI makes possible, and we need to have discussions about the implications of blockchain. Um, but it's generally a massive focus on people. And one, the customers and how their needs will evolve and how the way that they make decisions will change and what's important to them and how that will change. Um, and then two, your own people and your own staff and trying to figure out a way to get companies to be very comfortable with, with change. How do you... Um, employ people that like taking risks? How do you celebrate people that make a difference? How do you create a culture where um, failure is celebrated as long as you learn from it? And it's those really key human things that are missing in the conversation because everyone thinks the digital transformation is about a robot. You know, it's actually about free coffee, you know. But do you think that embracing that innovation is possible as the workforce becomes more disparate? You spoke about the challenges around the hybrid working model, six people in a room on, like, on the same Zoom call, three people in other parts. Is it, 
is it possible to build that culture and celebrate innovation whilst that that's taking place? I think it's very hard. I mean, again, um, we have to be aware of the fact that the number of companies that have successfully really changed um, is extremely small. I mean, in preparation for my book, I tried to think of good examples of massive companies that have changed. And there is um, Netflix, who've changed twice. um, And there is uh, Microsoft. um, But beyond that, we've seen very little real change. You know, car companies may be making electrical vehicles, but I haven't seen that much evidence that they're changing in their culture. And that's really what this comes down to. And I mean, uh, this is a this is me thinking aloud, but we may have to face the uncomfortable truth that companies need fewer people in management structures. Like I think we are now at an age where it's so easy to learn new skills and it's so easy to be informed that this idea of sort of command and control and compliance and a sort of army-like structure may not be the best way to really make change. It may be that we need to have much smaller companies with much smaller teams, with people that make decisions very quickly and act on those very quickly. And they take measured bets. I mean, big companies are very good at doing tiny things and they're good at doing big things, but it's the medium-sized things which are interesting. So how do you get those companies to do proper innovation products, to design like really different things, to reinvent the experience? And, And what is that relationship? Is that a company that's like a spin-off? Is that a unit within your company that's a, a lab? Um, these are the things that companies will be exploring over the next few years, I think. Whereas with all these things, it's the, the courage of conviction through that period where you aren't making any money whilst you're right. having to tell people you're not making money. That's, that's, that's where the rubber always meets the road. And that's why the size of it needs to be um, correct, because, you know, realistically, if you're a hotel chain worth, you know, $20 billion, it's going to be very hard for you to invest hundreds of millions of dollars into something that may not work. Um, But I think companies have often done things that are too small and too superficial and mainly to signal to the financial markets that they kind of get it and that they too have, you know, a little spin-off thing and they're too working with hackathons. And actually, these things need to be done more properly. I think um, I would love to reel off hundreds of examples of companies doing really fascinating things in this space, but it really hasn't happened yet. Do you think the the harsh reality is there will always be the the disruptive startups that push the envelope and what they do is just drag traditional companies to incrementally evolve just fast enough to sort of avoid being eaten and, and as such move from generation to generation? It's a very interesting thought. I mean, it does depend a lot on different categories. We also have to face the realization that some companies really probably should die. I mean, there are whole categories. I mean, department stores for me is a good example. Department stores are based on the idea that you live in a small town in middle America and the only way that you can buy something is to go to a place And in order for that place to make financial sense, it has to sell a whole variety of different things. And there should be people that curate that choice for you. And the entire proposition doesn't make any sense. Like the entire world is a department store now. And if you are a company that basically would not be created today, and this is the premise of my book, look at your company and look at what you do and how you make it and then figure out what you would create today 
And you probably wouldn't create many businesses. You probably wouldn't create a bank that has branches all over the world. You probably wouldn't create an airline that decides to buy Boeing 767s. You wouldn't decide to have a hotel company that owns all of its properties. You wouldn't decide to be a newspaper that prints on dead trees. Um, you would create something different. And that becomes your challenge and your opportunity. So what should your company be? How should it make money? Um, and that's a very horrible question because you might realize it should be something else completely different. Yeah. But what are you going to do about it? Are you going to manage the decline or are you going to try and build something that's new? Well, I, I guess it, it depends on the uh, hunger of the shareholders. <laughs> so as we speak, Debenhams in the UK, which is one of the oldest department stores in the UK, is no longer as a physical yeah. presence. You know, one should afford these companies a lot of respect because they're full of wonderful people. It's deeply sad to see people losing their jobs. But the reality is that Debenhams has been obviously facing an end for about 17 years. I mean, you don't have to be some miraculous future predictor to know that that entire model doesn't make any sense. Um, so it's extraordinary to me that it can take so long for these companies to see that. And, and, that, and that, that's really what COVID's done is just accelerate the trends that were happening already and made it more difficult for companies to procrastinate. So Tom, where can people find you and um, what sort of things can they reach out to you for that you can help them with? Yes, yeah, so uh, people can find me um, on LinkedIn. I tend to be quite vocal and annoying, but hopefully helpful on LinkedIn. So I think my profile is Tom F. Goodwin, I think it is. Um, and I have a company called All We Have Is Now, which is basically a kind of an insurgent, uh, provocative strategy consulting firm. So I come in and I'm extremely polite. I'm normally um, more pleasant than this. And I basically help companies uh, start the conversation they need to have in order to bring about the change they need to make happen. So one, I start the conversations. Two, I then can then follow up and make the changes happen. So that's everything from culture change to building out innovation units to coming up with new ideas. Um, so there's both the provocation and then the start of the solution. Yeah, and that facilitation role is often really important because you can, often the ideas are already in the room. It's people having the courage to actually have an environment without to say what they what they believe without a doubt and you know there will be parts of this where i come across as being quite rude and sort of condescending but people who work in many of the companies that we think of as struggling um are incredible like we are in this unfortunate stage where everyone looks at uber airbnb tesla etc and they presume that everyone who works there is a genius and they presume that everyone that works for marriott or that is in the taxi business or that you know works for american airlines is is an idiot and it's really not true i mean big companies are fantastic full of brilliant people that know tons of stuff they got vast resources they have trusted brands they have incredible processes and it becomes a question of working with what you've got um, and often you find that companies are their own worst enemies. They've become too big and people have stopped providing ideas and people have given up on change. And I like to come in and just sort of give everyone a hug, um, maybe a high five um, if you're allowed to do any of these things anymore and bring out the best in what they've got. And often it doesn't need that much money. Often it doesn't need more people. Often it doesn't need more expertise. It's more a question of figuring out the energy that's already there and working with that. Fantastic. Well, on, on that note, I think that leaves the listeners a lot to lot to go away with. So thank you very much, Tom. It's really appreciated. And on behalf of everyone at Oriko, thank you very much. My pleasure.